0: Welcome, welcome to the Heads Together Podcast. Thank you for joining me again this week. Good to have you. This week, I am joined by the just beyond fab, Erin Austin. Erin was introduced to me, actually, by one of my clients because she said, Jill, this is someone who you really need to see if you can get on your podcast because she talks about a subject that so many of us do not understand and she was right and the topic is ip intellectual property and erin is oh she has just such a great way of breaking this topic down and making it accessible for us explaining what it is and why it matters or why it should matter to us as creators and as she said, you know, if you have a service business, you have an IP business. There's no two ways about it. Now, what that means for you might differ, but IP is something you have. So that's really interesting for me. This applies to all of us. Erin is, uh, she's just amazing. She's a graduate of Harvard Law School. And she is a consultant and she she works with women who are on that journey, like so many of you are, I know, of transforming their business from maybe it's a one-to-one coaching practice, a one-to-one consulting service, transforming that into a scalable version. So that means Introducing leveraged offers. You know, I talk about this a lot. Leveraging your time, leveraging your expertise, packaging that up into whatever that looks like for you. Is it a group program? Is it a digital course? Is it a workshop? You know, there's lots of ways you can leverage. So Erin refers to those as wealth building assets and that's what they are. She specializes in helping women scale their business through the creation of this IP based revenue streams. So this is incredibly relevant and valuable for you, my lovely, lovely listeners. So I'm not going to go on too much. I cannot wait for you to meet Erin. Let's jump into the interview. Welcome, welcome to the Heads Together podcast. I'm Jill Mokes, and I am obsessed with cutting through the noise when it comes to growing your business. Each week, via intimate coaching conversations and inspirational stories, I share what it really takes to get the results you want in a way that feels right to you. I am all about attracting higher ticket opportunities, building authentic relationships, and creating the abundant, full-fat version of your dream business. I mean, how many of us have beavered away creating a light version of what we really want? The thing is, I honestly believe when you're outstanding at what you do, there is no limit to what you can achieve. So, are you ready to put our heads together and make it happen? Let's go. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Jill. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. I was just saying to Erin before we jumped on, this is a really interesting episode for me because normally the guests I have on kind of tend to be in my sphere, if you like. So it tends to be topics that I know something about. I am so thrilled that you're joining us today because this is a topic that I really know nothing about. You know, that gives me massive imposter syndrome as well when I'm coaching because I feel like it's a hole. It's something I should know about to be able to tell my clients about, and I don't. And that is the entire subject of IP, intellectual property. What it is, what it means for our business, how we need to protect it, you know, all of the things, I feel like that's a it's a black hole for me. Yeah. Well, it is my mission to... uh
1: illuminate the black hole, you know, having spent a a career working with big companies where intellectual property is the value driver. I've come from it, frankly, with this assumption that everybody knows about intellectual property. And of course we know how valuable it is. And so I love having these conversations where I can, you know, help other people in expertise-based businesses understand the value of intellectual property in their businesses, because it is really important.
0: Exactly. it is, And I'm hearing it. It is really important. And then I feel even more shame that I don't know what it is or (laughs) what we share. I kind of loosely know what it is, but I don't really understand the implications of it. So I suppose my first question that I, this is going to be really good because I've got like a thousand questions. I'm going to try not to machine gun you with them. So tell me if I am. But the first question that I would love to ask you about is from your time At Harvard and now coming into the kind of world of entrepreneurship, I guess. And like you say, having this realization that it isn't something that everyone knows about and it isn't something that's on everyone's agenda. Where do you tend to start with people? Where do you open the conversation about it?
1: Yeah. I like to say that IP is everywhere. Intellectual property is the product of our intellect. So whenever we're using our brains, we are creating intellectual property. So if I record a podcast with you, here we are creating an intellectual property. I post something on LinkedIn, I'm creating intellectual property. I create deliverables for my client. That is intellectual property. I go on Fiverr and ask somebody to create a logo for me. That is intellectual property. I mean, IP is everywhere. So, you know, there's no shame in not kind of thinking about it because it isn't tangible. We can't put our hands on it, except, you know, maybe a book is probably only the time, uh, you know, a painting. But, you know, in our businesses, it's just what we do, right? And so, um, and we get paid for using our brains, but we're not thinking about it as we're also paid to create, to advise, to consult, and all those deliverables that can be used, you know, for action steps, for an action plan, a strategy. Uh, You know, if you're creating an employee handbook for someone, if you're creating uh, marketing materials for someone, all those things are intellectual property. And so what we need to think about, well, I like to start with the issue isn't whether or not you're making creating intellectual property. You are. The issue is who owns it? Do you own it? Or does the client own it? Or does the subcontractor own it? Because it's all about the ownership that we derive value from it.
0: Got it. So so the place to start is who owns it. Before even thinking about what to do with it or how to protect it or any of those things, we start with who owns it. Yes. How is that decided?
1: Yeah. So under U.S. copyright law, the creator, this is the default. The creator owns the copyright in the material. So I am a marketer. I am engaged to create a, some copy, let's say copywriter. I'm a copywriter. I'm engaged to write some copy and I own it because that's the default. Unless there is something in writing with my client that says client, you own it. Or I'm an employee of a marketing agency and then my employer owns it. On the other hand, if I'm a client and I engage a copywriter to write some copy for me, unless there's agreement in place, the copywriter owns it and I just have a right to use it. And so it all starts with who's is the creator? Because the default is that the creator owns it. That's why we want to always make sure that we have agreements in place, written agreements in place that determines if we want something other than the default to, to apply if we want someone else to own it to make sure that that's in place so the creation and ownership are bound together because the creator is the owner but when we want to change that we have
0: to have something in writing that makes complete sense but what I suppose I'm wondering now is what are the implications then for say someone like me? So I create my own content, but I also work with a copywriter sometimes for copy. And I my virtual assistant certainly creates marketing assets for me, like social media captions and posts and graphics and things like that. And I'll be honest, I haven't got a... F- faintest idea whether that was in the contract. I mean, I I signed a contract. I have no idea whether it makes me the owner or not. So what are the implications if it turns out that it's left as the default, which is that they would own it? Mm -hmm. What's the implications for me? The default is that the creator
1: owns it and you have a non-exclusive license to use it with emphasis on the non-exclusive. So if they wanted to use it for another client, they own the copyright and they could uh, allow another client to use it. Now, as a practical matter, you know, how popular will this copywriter be <laughs> if they run around reusing content? They have a business reason to not do that, to always make sure that it's original. Mm. And as a practical matter, very few people sue over Copyrights, unless it's very, you know, a movie, music, things like that. Yeah, clear plagiarism or something. Right, exactly. But where it really comes into play. And so, you know, a lot of times you will have no issues because you have your copy, you do your thing, there's no conflict, nothing ever happens, right? It's never an issue until it's an issue, right? Right, until, (laughs) right, until you blow up, until, you know, you're. Video goes viral, and then someone goes, "Wait a minute, that's mine." Or you know, you want to sell your business, and they do legal due diligence, and they're like, "Wait a minute." They look at your contracts; like you don't have any contracts for any of your you know your framework or your courses. Like, who did you create them yourself? Well, no, I use this contractor. Like, but you don't have anything in writing, and so then they can't buy that because you don't have exclusive rights in it. So your problems happen when the real value comes into place, right? And certainly if you are using someone to create things that will generate revenue, like courses or frameworks, something that you want to make sure that you have exclusive rights to, you really do want to make sure that you have written agreements and that it says what you need it to say, which is that you are the exclusive copyright owner.
0: What's really interesting for me with that is that those kind of things, so for example, the leveraged offers like digital courses, like group coaching programs, all of those things that my clients look at as ways to scale beyond their one-to-one practice Mm -hmm. are the very things that they do need to protect because I guess if you're a one-to-one coaching practice, you're never going to sell that business. That business is you. Mm-hmm. That's a lifestyle business. That's not a business you're going to sell. The moment you start introducing things like digital courses and programs, et cetera, suddenly you've got assets within that business that make it a saleable business. So now that makes complete sense that this could come around to bite you if you don't understand this. We're f- much further down the line. And the whole point of people creating these kind of assets generally is because they want to scale their business. Right. And it it can bite you even sooner than down the line. So let's say you are doing one-on-one
1: services and you are doing it for a client, a corporate client that requires you to sign their services agreement. Like many of them do. They'll have their own template. They want all their vendors to sign their version. And the default language in that services agreement is that the client owns all of the deliverables. And so you create a workshop for them and you deliver it. And they're like, great, I own everything now, because that's what my agreement says. But part of the things in that workshop, that's, you know, part of your expertise and your genius. And so you go to the next client, and the next client has their agreement that says they own everything. And you do You use some of the same materials, because why wouldn't you? (laughs) Except now you have these other people, another client that owns your workshops. And then someday you go, you know what, I don't want to just do one-on-one. I want to create some signature workshops that are standardized that I'm now selling, you know, either on a standard as a productized service, or I'm uh, making a course out of them, one of the two. And so now instead of just your one-on-one clients getting these things, and frankly, you know, client A will never know what's in client B's. Workshops, right? Because they're never see it. But once you start putting them on the internet and people can start accessing them, suddenly, wait a minute. I thought that was our workshop that you created for us. And so, just that stage, you can start getting into trouble if you're not really clear about who owns the elements of your workshops.
0: Well, that makes complete sense because if you've created something for one client and they are then portraying that as exclusive and original, and then you've got client B who is also portraying it as exclusive and original, I guess I can see how that hot water is going to uh, start rising quite quickly, potentially, but particularly as you say, if then you turn it into a standardized model and actually start publicizing it yourself. Ah, that. Gosh, now that does make complete sense. Yes, Erin, is this just for people with big values at stake? Or is this something that everyone really needs to start thinking about?
1: It's something that everyone needs to think about. and And I want to just make sure that we don't think that IP is just this big, elusive thing. It really is as simple as owning it and protecting it is as simple as A two page services agreement. I mean, you may have client corporate clients that send you those 50 page MSAs, but that's it's not that complicated. There's only like one page of that MSA that is about the ownership of the intellectual property. And it really is as simple as, you know, when you're hiring a contractor to have that SOW that clarifies that you own all the deliverables, that is one paragraph. And that makes sure that you own everything. And when you are working with your clients, and there are deliverables, that you make sure that you are reserving and carving out your pre-existing works. If you're an HR consultant and you're bringing, you know, your own workbooks and exercises to it, you make sure that you you're still going to own those after the program, and that you'll be able to use them with other clients. That's not a big whole agreement that's literally one paragraph of your services agreement. And so, you know, making sure you're reserving these rights or collecting these rights from from your employees and subcontractors is a simple process. Now, you're not going to want to, you know, have grand plans for all of it. You're going to own it and then someday maybe you want to create that course. You want to write the book about it. And then you but you want to make sure you own those so that you can register Those public facing documents in the copyright office and make sure that you can protect those. So, you know, that ownership does not require registration. So, we own it when we create it, we own it when we hire somebody. The registration process would come later if we think that there is like big value in it that you would want to protect against third party infringers.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, as a consultant, say, and using that workshop example if we do at some point want to kind of commoditize perhaps our way we do workshops we want to at some point should we then be really paying really close attention to those big contracts that are coming from bigger clients and do we push back at that point do we say to them that you know how does that work how do how would you have that conversation to say actually i'm not willing to sign over everything because I need to be able to retain that part of the intellectual property in case I want to sell something similar or create a framework.
1: Yeah. Believe it or not, the client, when they send over their template, they absolutely expect for there to be some modifications made to it. It's very rare that someone just signs something that comes back over to them and they will have just standard language. They're not thinking about your business; they're just thinking about their business, and it will just have that standard language in there for you to add a very simple couple of sentences that reserves your pre-existing material. I guarantee that there is not a client on the planet that will object to it, unless they do believe you're creating something original. You know, like if you if they're hiring you specifically to create their own in-house workshop, then they would expect that. If you are a writer, they would expect to write, you know, to own that. But if it's something where you're bringing your expertise in and helping them solve whatever problem they have, they do not expect to own your materials that you bring to the table. They do not. And they will not object to adding that. And, you know, I will say, you know, I've been doing this a really long time and I've reviewed a lot of agreements with very, very large companies. And there's one, which I, w- I can say in the entire world, because <laughs> I think I've worked with most of them, there is <laughs> one that said, no, you just sign what we had. One. The others were, you know, Fortune 50 companies that, yeah, I mean, they, they do. They do.
0: Yeah. So there's definitely an expectation that you. Take good care and sit, have a your own little. Like you say, it doesn't have to be complicated. It's a, a couple of paragraphs or whatever that makes sense. So, what that's brought up for me then is how different does your IP have to be to be seen as fresh, new content? How how would that be decided?
1: Yeah, well, you know. When we're creating, it does need to be original, right? Yeah. And so the copyright office does not vet what you write against the world, right? So if I write a book and I say it's all original, I register with the copyright office, it isn't until someone reads it and says, wait a minute, she stole from me that that anything will come from that like there's not some tribunal out there that's looking to see if you plagiarized. So the person who owns who claims the original copyright is the only way that who only person who has a claim against you. So that is up to us to make sure that we are creating original materials. You know, I mean obviously AI has been very big in the news recently. Yeah, that was going to be something I wanted to talk about for sure. It's on mm-hmm. you to make sure that AI hasn't plagiarized, it does not do plagiarism checks. It just scoops up whatever information it has and spits it back out. Sometimes they provide, you know, source material, sometimes it doesn't. And so that is on you to make sure that it's original. You know, one of the things that people will come up against is they have been certified. like So they've taken some certification program and they have received training and maybe they even received an assessment or things like that that they're using with their one-on-one clients. It's fine to use those materials with your one-on-one clients, but you can't then put that in the course and sell it as your own. Even with attribution, you can't do that. You know, you have to have permission to do that. So yeah, attribution is not permission, by the way. So just by linking to someone or telling someone that's where you got it from, that is not permission. So,
0: Um, I'm really glad you said that because I do think there is sometimes this school of thought that credit, you know, everyone says, you know, know, make sure you credit the, well, okay. But, you know, that's not getting permission (laughs) to reproduce something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, just a detour into that for a second. Permission you were requ- it's required. It can be implied. So it doesn't have to be in writing, but it makes we should have it in writing just to make sure we understand the terms and everything. But a license is literally permission to use someone else's intellectual property mm-hmm. and you need to get that either from the owner or someone who has the rights to sub-license it, and so it should be clear any third-party materials that you're using to make money. So you want to make sure that you have rights to use it. If you're putting something on your website, quoting someone on your website, and you put a link to it, you know, like you don't need to run out and get licenses for all of that. But you also want to be prepared to take it down if somebody says you don't like it, they don't like it. But if you are investing in products or other materials that incorporate other third parties materials, you want to make sure you have licenses for that before you make those investments. You know, not only, you know, is the possibility of being sued for infringement, but obviously it looks bad to, you know, your clients and to anyone who bought it that you've got to say, Hey, sorry, I actually didn't have rights to these materials that I sold you. You just don't want that to happen. So,
0: yeah. And I think that is something that as coaches and consultants and uh, service providers, that's something that really should be top of mind because I do see this a lot in terms of, well, imagery, I think we're fairly comfortable with now. We know which sites we can download and use from. But again, even that, it is worth checking. If you're downloading images from a a royalty-free site, you do still need to check the license, don't you, as to what you can use it for. Yeah, some might be just for
1: your website, but you can't put them in a newsletter or something. like. So there are different uses,
0: yes. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's something to definitely be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's one of those subjects that once you start thinking about it, it's like a spider web. So my brain yeah. is going out and out. And- <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you realize how applicable it is to so many areas
0: of your business. You do. And there are certain things in business that you really pay attention to and wouldn't dream of neglecting or ignoring. Mm -hmm. And this just feels like an area, the whole area of IP feels to me like an area that we don't, we, and I'm not talking about you definitely, but we, (laughs) as in (laughs) us masses, don't understand enough. And so we kind of ignore it. Yeah, I mean you know, I think people think
1: intellectual property is kind of for the lawyers and it's for the big guys. It's software, it's, you know, products, you know, patents and things like that. And but it's not. It is as much part of our business as our financials. So, you know, we are marketers, but we still understand our financial statements, right? That's right. And so we are service providers. We need to understand our services agreements. We we do.
0: Yeah. And we talked about some of the kind of exposure of not doing that. You know, how do you sell this to clients who you might talk to and might say, Oh, I don't think that applies to me. I don't really, you know, I don't really have anything in my business that I'm bothered about. What is that motivation that people need to take care of this? Yeah. I mean, you need to
1: be thinking about the future of your business. The reason we invest in assets is that it future proofs our business it makes sure that we are able to grow it. If we want to graduate from one-on-one services to something that is scalable, to something that is independent from our time, to something that perhaps we can sell someday, that requires assets. And the assets in the expertise business, that's intellectual property. And so it's not if you're trajectory for your business is to continue to provide one-on-one services, it really isn't something you need to worry about too much. But if you do want to create some leverage, then the only way to create leverage is through creating your intellectual property, which meaning you need to own it and control it. And so the other way, you know, even with the one-on-one, I'm gonna make this detour too.
0: Mm-hmm. When
1: we have agreements that have what I call restrictive covenants. So either non-competes or non-solicitations. Those are things that restrict what you can do, like how you can run your business after the engagement is over. And these things burn me up. I'm anti non competes. You know, that is your expertise. And you should be able to use it with every competitor in your vertical if you if they want to work with you. Because we have non disclosure requirements. We can't share what we learn with one client with another client. But my expertise, I can use my expertise with everyone who wants access to it. And, you know, when we agree to things like non competes, we prevent ourselves from creating niches. You know, what is a niche? It's a group of competitors,
0: right? Oh, gosh, that's interesting. That's very timely. I've been talking a lot about niches this week. (laughs) So you cannot
1: have something that restricts your use of your expertise. So even if you want to stay one-on-one, you still need to be mindful of those services agreements and understand anything in there that will restrict your ability to even provide your one-on-one
0: services. Yeah. Gosh, that does make sense. Straight away, as soon as you said we're all about niching down, it makes our marketing so much easier if we have a clearly defined niche. But certainly that is an aspect I hadn't thought of. The minute you do niche down, especially if you get very niche down, so that you are working with a pool of clients who are very similar. Yeah. And we go back to those templates. Yeah.
1: I mean, a lot of times they will have automatically have the non-compete language in there and people just sign it because they think that. They, but you don't. You don't. You, you tell them, no, I will keep your, your information confidential, but I need to be able to use my expertise in my niche.
0: That's very clear. I get that. That is very clear. Tell me, Erin, a bit now about where you come in with this. How do you help clients, your clients with this?
1: Yeah. Well, I like to help them understand the rights flow. So the rights that come into our business through our original creation, through our subcontractors, through third party licenses. Am I? call that like our reservoir, our reservoir of rights that we can create assets from, but to also understand how we lose those rights through non-competes, through services agreements where we're granting too many rights to our clients.
0: Yeah. Getting our hands tied behind our back. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly right. And so we create this bucket of, of rights. And then from that, how can we leverage that? You know, we don't, Create intellectual property because it's pretty, even if it is. We create it because we want to deploy it in some way to help grow our businesses. So what's the best way to deploy it? You know, if you are someone who does one on one workshop for your clients, is there a way to take that bucket of rights to create some productized services from it or some standardized workshops from it? Or, you know, maybe you have clients that you've been going to one-on-one with them and they have offices all over the country and they could keep you busy for a year going around to all these places. But guess what? That means you're not working with any other client. You're not working on any part of your business. All you're doing is doing these one-on-one services. So let's put it into something that we can license to the client, you know, that we can train someone there to deliver your workshops so that you can get the revenue from those workshops without having to run all over the country. And it allows you to, you know, continue to develop other parts of your business. Or maybe you have a specialization that other consultants would love to have access to. So, you know, we have a lot of DEIA training happening in the U.S. right now. The accessibility piece is relatively new. You know, we've had these rules about what we need to do with our websites for The decade, no one was doing anything with it, right? Until recently, and so maybe you know you have developed a process for making websites accessible, but other consultants don't know it yet, so they can license that expertise from you. So there's different ways that we talk about packaging those rights that they have made sure that they put in their reservoir for ways that are scalable, either services, scalable services or scalable products to help them grow their businesses. So that's that's what I work with people
0: to do. So I just suddenly was thinking this is so the work you do with clients helps them really differentiate their offering as well. Because I'm thinking, you know, the internet is awash with free content. Mm -hmm. We can, like, literally, I mean, my God, you can look on YouTube for how to do anything. I frequently do for (laughs) when I've broken something. (laughs) But what you do is help clients find opportunities where they set themselves apart from that sea of free information. Okay, that really makes sense.
1: Yeah, I like, I mean, I didn't say this at the beginning, but, you know, intellectual property is a legal monopoly. Yep. When you have intellectual property, nobody else can use it without your permission. Either they have to buy it from you or they have to license it from you. Any other use of it is a infringement of your IP that, you know, you have a claim against. So so talk about exclusivity. If we talk about our unique positioning, intellectual property is by definition exclusive
0: and unique. And it also means that if you are offering to license something you've created to a client, your example of DEI training was a great one. If you're thinking about licensing something that you've put together for that so that they can then roll it out internally, Mm -hmm. the moment you position it as such that they have to license from you to do it, you can put a higher price point on that offer straight away. And that's all about the positioning of it. It's all about the fact that, no, this is valuable content that I have spent time creating, getting feedback or whatever you've done to create this very definitive version of the content that you want to share. And I see that as a massive plus as a creator. It straight away positions you as more of an expert in that area. It allows you to charge a higher price point. That's aside from the fact that you're protecting yourself. That's just the the marketing spin on it, if you like, I guess.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of building your brand, I mean, the more people you can reach, the bigger your brand becomes. We can reach, there's a finite number of people we can uh, impact on a one-on-one basis, right? But once we start licensing our materials, either to clients who are rolling it up themselves, that means we can, before we could only maybe handle that one big client a year, but now we have multiple clients, even if it's on that level, or if we are licensing it to other providers who are then going out in the world and using our materials, or for selling it online, we increase our reach and our impact when we scale. So not only do we increase our income, but we also increase our reach and impact as well.
0: Absolutely. And that, after all, that is the secret to scaling, isn't it? And it's something we all crave is to leverage our time. I'm a really big believer that there is so much value in working one-to-one with clients. It's what gets the biggest transformations for clients. But it's capped. It is. There is one of me and there's 24 hours in my day the same as anyone else's. So I think, you know, as as business owners, we have to be looking at ways of leveraging our time. But now what you've brought into it for me is it's not just leveraging time, it's leveraging your expertise, I guess. It, it really is leveraging the unique content that only you could pull together in the way you've pulled it together.
1: Right. And being able to reach audiences that you might not have otherwise been able to. I mean, assuming that you are charging premium prices for your one-on-one and there are clients that would love to get access to your expertise, but just could not afford you to have it in packaged in a way that they could still get some of the benefits from it, but at a different price point.
0: So that helps you as well. Yes. I just had a thought. We're both podcast creators. These podcast episodes are IP, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Our show notes are IP. Everything about this is IP. Yes. Hmm. And by the way, I don't know if you
1: had it because um, I didn't fill out your intake form. But do you have on your intake form you did. something that gives you the rights? Well, no, Stacy did it. I'm, you know, but oh, <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Stacy. You did it very well.
1: What <laughs> <laughs> does it say that you own the rights in your
0: podcast so that you can? Well, no, it doesn't. Do you know all it says at the bottom? It says something like, Do you agree for me to publish it and to use, you know, your headshot and all of that kind of thing to promote it? But it doesn't actually say, Do you acknowledge that this is my intellectual property or anything? So that's one for me to get on and think about for <laughs> sure. Oh my goodness, I just know, I know my audience quite well. And I know that there are going to be so many people sitting at home right now going, Damn. I need to think about this. God, with that in mind, Erin, can you clear your calendar? No. I'm just thinking, you know, if anyone wants to go deeper on this, because there's only so much that we can cover in a podcast Mm -hmm. episode. And I think it was really important to me that we got across you know, what it is and why it matters. Mm -hmm. But if someone feels like maybe they're on the cusp of really starting to scale their business and this has really resonated as something they need to be taking care of, or someone who just wants to do things right from the outset, which is always the camp I fall into. I've always been someone that tries to put every single right process and piece of compliance and everything in place right from the outset, because I think it makes your life so much easier. First of all, where can they find you? And yeah, how can they reach out? Yeah, well, a couple places you can
1: find me. One, my website is thinkbeyondip.com. And there I have some free resources. You sign up for them and you'll get on my email newsletter list, which comes out weekly. I also have a podcast called Hourly to Exit where I talk about the journey from, you know, the unsustainable hourly model to one where hopefully you can sell your business someday. And that is a mixture of guests as well as solo episodes where I chat about IV. (laughs) And then I also have a LinkedIn Live. You can always find me on LinkedIn Live. I'm the OG, OG is, the OG Aaron Austin, because I've been on it so long that, you know, I was the first one.
0: I love that I did not know that about you Yes, (laughs) that's awesome yeah
1: and I do a LinkedIn live the last Wednesday of every month and I'm always taking requests for topics where I just go on and talk about a topic of interest to audiences like yours um and and it's alive so interactive and can ask questions so
0: oh that's cool Can people like submit questions to you beforehand? Yes,
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Connect (laughs) with me on LinkedIn (laughs) and then send a question. over. Oh, that's great. I like that. I love that format. That's a good idea. Erin, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm going to put links, all the links you just mentioned are going to be in the show notes. I really would urge you to have a listen to Erin's podcast because it is great. I love it. So do have a listen into that. And also sign up for her newsletter because it's very useful. Like I say, I I was saying to her beforehand, I kind of wanted to come at this conversation quite fresh from a place of not knowing about IP because I wanted to be able to ask the basic questions. Hopefully I don't get loads of emails back saying, Jill, we all knew exactly what it was. God, <laughs> bloody hell. Why have you given us the... I don't think so. Like I say, I know my audience pretty well. I think everyone's a little bit in the dark about IP and what it means to them. And I think you've shined some light on that for us really well. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thanks, Erin. Bye for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that getting our heads together this week has filled your mind with what's possible. If you love the show, would you do me a massive favor, please? Would you leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts? It would really help you put more heads together, reach more ears, and expand more minds. Until next week, bye for now.